So I'll speak for a few minutes from Shikshastakam of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And I assume you're not so familiar with the terminologies and so forth and the philosophy, so it's a deep subject. I'll try to speak in such a way that those who have been involved for years will benefit and persons like yourself who haven't been and are uninformed will also be able to draw something from the discussion. Shikshastaka means literally, astaka means eight, and shiksha means instructions or teachings. So it's eight teachings. And uh, this Shikshastakam was penned about 500 years ago by Sri Krishna Chaitanya, who was considered by the uh, secular world and the religious world as well to be a great mystic and devotee who exhibited extraordinary ecstasy of divine love. The uh, extent to which is uh, there, there's no comparison in religious history. So a very extraordinary manifestation of divine madness, if you will. And his principal method to his madness was, if you, if you will, was the, the, uh, the chanting of the name of God. And he chanted the name Krishna which is a particular name of God that relates to, describes the, the, the heart of divinity. Just like Buddha, Buddha means smart, wisdom, Buddha. Buddha means intelligence in Sanskrit. So the Buddha is a particular avatar or incarnation of God, the face of the Absolute that represents kind of the wisdom of the Absolute, the wisdom of not only the futility of material desire, but how desire is futile, material desire in terms of satisfying us. But not only is it futile, but it is, to pursue it is counterproductive. <laughs> so, this was, a, for example, a, a principal emphasis of the Buddha in his wisdom teaching. He had uh, four noble truths, I believe, one of which was about desire. Desire is Trishna, not Krishna, but Trishna. Trishna means thirst. So that he meant desire, the thirst for material acquisition and subtle forms of material acquisition in the form of distinction and prestige and honor and so forth. He said this uh, fosters suffering only. So he reasoned and reasoned well that desire should be extinguished. So in relation to the problem of material existence, he weighed in heavily with some wisdom. There's more to it than that, but that's understandable in as much as even if we look at our own selves, we can understand that we have intelligence with which to weigh in on something and we have a heart also. They should be balanced. We should balance our heart with our head. We should lower our head to, and use it to soften our heart. Knowing is superficial, really. Feeling, that's getting somewhere. What we know in our head is one thing. What we feel, that's another thing. That's why we say, yes, I know Swami, but... 
<laughs> I feel somewhere else, something else, and I'm going to do that. So at any rate, my point is simply that Buddha is, for example, a face of God. So Krishna is another face, if you will, of God. And the name Krishna speaks about not the, the wisdom of the Godhead or Absolute, but the heart of divinity. And therefore, in a, in a simple translation, Krishna means irresistible. This is the definition given Vishijiva Goswami. Bhagavan Guna Vishishta. Not only is the all attractive, attractive to all, but irresistible. Narayan is all attractive. He's Bhagavan, but Swayam Bhagavan, Krishna means irresistible. Even Narayan cannot resist. Have been seeking the, the darshan, of the, the vision of the experience, the, the company of Krishna. So he's charm, charming aspect. Krishna speaks about the love life of, of the Absolute, so that must be the Absolute heart. And when we hear about Krishna, we may think, we may question the idea of Sri Chaitanya in his eight teachings that we're discussing, that Krishna is the ultimate manifestation of divinity. I've talked about it in the way that we can relate to it somewhat as much as the heart is what we're really all about. Yes. And this is the heart of divinity. But at the same time, we, may, we will think that the Absolute must be all-powerful. And Krishna doesn't appear to be that powerful and compared to other faces of divinity. You have the power of Brahma with four heads, big manager, and Shiva's power of meditation, that he can give up anything in the world. He's dressed in, in the uh, literature, and in art, he's been depicted as dressed in ashes only, and garlanded with uh, bones. It means to say that he has no interest in the world. That's the idea. <laughs> so uh, that's power. There's power in bhairagya, in detachment. And so Krishna doesn't appear to be powerful in those ways, in a physical way like Brahma with so many heads, or in a mystical way. Yeah, like Shiva, who's meditating, and Brahma's powerful by acquisition, and Shiva's powerful by renunciation, not acquiring, more powerful. But we should understand, how is Krishna, this idea of Krishna depicted by mystics, in their experience in their heart, and then depicted in art, and, and, and written about with the pen, and so forth, He's playful, playing the flute, dancing with milkmaidens, and, and so forth. But the idea is that he has nothing to do. He's only playing. Brahma's busy, he has something to do. Shiva has something to accomplish also, meditation, detachment. He's careful. He's on watch. He's watching the tip of his nose, as it's advised in meditation not to get distracted anywhere. But Krishna has nothing to accomplish, nothing to achieve, and he's simply playing. And one who plays, we all know, in order to play like you're playing now, you're on a vacation, I take it. Hmm? You have a job, right? Yes. In England? Yes. So you've taken some time off to come here. So in order to do that, 
you have to have worked and have some power, some time off. You have to build, have built up some compensation for your effort, some money in the bank. So playing, the point is, requires power. So one who is only playing must be all-powerful. This is the idea. And powerful. It is power to, to rule, to control. What is the means of his controlling? By affection. We will never be controlled as well by rule as by affection, by love. Never. Therefore, our Guru Maharaj, when he formed his society, he said it should be governed by two rules, two principles, really. Do you know what they were? Love and trust. Love and trust. This is bhakti. Let me see. Anti-material rules. Hmm? Anti-material rules. No, it's anti-spiritual rules, too. There's a place for spiritual rules, but they're a breakdown of love. If you and I live together in a room as roommates, and after a while I find that you like to stay up late at night, and you find I like to get up early in the morning, there's some conflict. You like to keep the lights on and play the radio, and I want to take rest in the night. When you're sleeping at night, in the early in the morning, I want to get up and, and do what I want to do, and make my noise, make myself heard. So there's a breakdown. So then we may say, okay, let's live together, but let's make some rules here. You have to go to bed by this time. Let's write it down. And you can't wake up before this time. Okay, and so on and so forth. So that's some kind of love. It's a breakdown of love, governed by rules. So we have a kind of bhakti like this also. It's called vaidhi-bhakti, the power of rule, rather than the power of absorption and love. But our ideal, and Prabhupada, our Guru Maharaj, instructed us in this regard, whether we understood it or not at the point, when he said in the beginning, oh, it should be governed by love and trust only. You see, that transcends rules. Rules should only be there to foster that kind of love and foster the kind of spontaneity of devotion that causes someone to do something without having to be told, right? Rules mean you have to be told because you don't know better or you need the rule, you need the power of the rule in order to, to proceed. So Krishna is not about that, about love and affection. And by affection and love, he, he rules. This is the idea. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Sri Krishna Chaitanya, he wrote about his the method, as I say, to his madness in eight stanzas called Shikshastakam. We're discussing this tonight. Shiksha, teaching, astakam, eight. And he is describing here, as I said, he was mad, really, in ecstasy. He would sing the name of Krishna and fall on the ground and get up and pass out unconscious and get up and sing it again and again pass out. He would read, he would sing the poetry of the Bhagwat. It's a great text, 18,000 poetic verses describing Krishna, both philosophically and poetically, both in terms of tattva and in terms of bhava, both aspects. And in, naturally, it's in the language of poetry, because in poetry, this is the language of love. If you want to try to say something about love, then you cannot explain it. You cannot convey it with words. But if you are to use words, then the best words would be poetry or song, which are emotive. 
in content. And and as again, love is about giving. So when you give, even if you give imperfectly, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was teaching how to give perfectly, how to find the, the, the perfect object of love that can take unlimitedly, and then how to give without expecting anything in return, which is the other side of the equation. If you want to have perfect love, you have to have the perfect object to repose your love in, and you have to give it without any expectation of return. So you could give unconditionally, but if the object to which you gave wasn't capable of receiving it entirely, there would be some imperfection in your giving. But however we give, however imperfectly we give, we still get. Because the fact of the matter is reality, ultimate reality, Godhead, is situated in acts of sacrifice. That's where God is. You see, he lives in giving, and we shall learn to live by giving. Give and live. This is the whole idea. And what we get when we give, even imperfectly, we cannot do justice to that with words. What can you say about it? When you give, you get. What do you get? Yourself is redeemed, partially, to the extent that you give. Redeemed from what? Redeemed from the life of taking. That our identification with matter forces us to be, to be involved in. In other words, this body has needs. I owe, I owe, they say. So, off to work I go. Hmm? So, I've identified with, this, with matter in this particular form, and it has needs. So, based on that identification, I have needs. And a needy person is not a giver. He's a taker. So we are all taking. And we're redeemed from this life of taking, which is condemnable. It's not pretty, actually, to the extent that we give. So that's what we get when we give. We get redeemed. So what we redeem ourselves from what? This imprisonment, this oppression of mind and body. The mind is oppressing us. The body is oppressing our body is made of senses. They're oppressing us, taking us in different directions, demanding the eyes, demanding you look here, the ears demanding you hear there. The stomach demands to eat, and when it's full, the tongue says, eat more. And we do, and we overeat, and this way we're being pulled in different directions at the same time. It's disconcerting. It's oppressive. The mind's demands, what we can conjure up in the mind as to what will make us happy is so small, yet we expect that everyone else will want, should want to live inside of it. Our idea of what will make us happy that isn't even making us happy, and we demand everyone else should live inside of there. It's very unreasonable. <laughs> so this is a kind, of a kind of the rule that we are under at present. It's very oppressive. And so this is how to get out of that. This is how to redeem oneself from this. How to become yourself, a giver, which is what you are, because you are full in yourself, but you've identified with something that's not full. So you feel that you have needs. So giving. So what is that self that we get? Well, Vedanta is trying to talk about that, and it cannot do justice to it. Just as 
materially speaking even, when we give, we get. And we get something real. We get relief from that oppression. We feel better. We feel happier. It's a subtle kind of happiness. It's not you got something that you can hold up and say, see, look what I got. But people can see it in you. She's a giver. And they, they like you. They're attracted to you. You're attractive by nature. When you're functioning in terms of what you really are, a giver rather than a taker. After all, look at it scientifically. Darwin says that the most complex form of life is the meanest form of life. The meanest form of life. The more complex you are, biologically, then the more you can dominate over others and therefore survive in the struggle for existence. This is what Darwin says, in, in a sense. Of course, there's social Darwinism that tries to expand the concept and, and, and so forth, but really, it doesn't go that far. Survival of the fittest means the meanest survive. But in human society, we all feel quite differently if we stop for a moment and think about it. How do we feel? Do we feel that the most evolved person is the meanest person? Would anybody come to that conclusion? Is there any debate whether Hitler was more evolved than Mother Teresa? There's no, there's no question about it. Everyone senses in human society that the most evolved person is the kindest person. Naturally, in human society, we're starting to come out from underneath the oppression of the mind in the sense that we can talk about these things, we can reason about these, we can think about these, we can pursue this, we can evolve. <laughs> in the true sense of the term, we can become kind. And it means becoming yourself, really, what you are, a unit of giving. After all, we're giving ourselves all the time, somewhere. So, we try. This is what Chaitanya Deva has tried to do. Try to explain the full experience of giving in eight verses, based on the Bhagwat, 18,000 verses of poetry, which he would read and cry, pass out, wake up, and read it again, like a drunken person who would drink and drink and pass out and get up and ask for another drink, only to pass out again. Very extraordinary figure in the religious history of the world. And again, this is the method to his madness. He talked about it in song, in poetry. He, his method to approach it, to, uh, that he offered to us, his state of experience of giving, was through this namkirtan, this, this chanting of the name of, of Krishna. So in these eight stanzas, eight poetic stanzas, he's talked about it. And the first thing that he's done is, in the first of the stanzas, is tried to awaken some faith in his listeners in the method, as I say, to his madness, that we might come on board. And in attempting to do that, he has extolled seven virtues or effects of this chanting, the name of Krishna. And the idea is that, well, if you hear it, it does this, it does this, it does this, it does this then you start to get some faith in that. Wow, I would like to participate in that. And the things that he said that it does are quite extraordinary. And over the balance of the poem, if you will, in seven verses, each of the subsequent seven verses has expanded upon those seven virtues that are listed in the first verse. 
listed there for the purpose of getting our interest and awakening faith, shraddha in us. Ado shraddha, it begins with this, with faith, divine faith. How we will get that? By good company, by association. Who has it? Who's a giver? Their company will be contagious and will be compelling. We won't be able to always understand everything. Again, we're trying to convey something that transcends logic anyway. We talk about it as logically as we can. We sing about it, speak about it in poetry. It's an affair of the heart. As Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is expressing his heart, so those following in his tradition, they get some heart also from this. They try to share that and express that. This causes others to, to catch on, so to speak. So Chaitanya Dev is showing how to do this in, in effect here and creating faith in us. So in the context of these seven effects that are successively more and more wonderful, I wrote this commentary on this poem. It's recently been published, so I've been speaking on it here and there. And uh, so I'm just picking up where I left off last, not here, but in California. And um, I discussed this uh, idea of how he's creating faith and the whole nature of faith, which is a big discussion. And then we discussed the first virtue of the chanting, ceto darpanamarjanam. It means literally to cleanse the that aspect of ourself that causes us to know that we exist. It's called chetana, cheta. And chetana they've compared it to a mirror. In other words, like we know that we exist and we have a sense of how we exist, but we are facing matter, and so with the mirror of our consciousness. And an image has come onto, this, onto the mirror and we've identified with that. And that image is a sense of self that's, the, that's a taker, as I said before, rather than a giver. So he says this chanting cleanses that image away. It does away with that image. And it does away with it in such a way that another image comes on the mirror. Because it does it in relation, not to simply cleansing it, but in relation to the chanting of the name of Krishna, which gives us an, uh, an image of all that we could possibly be as a full giver. In other words, spiritual life is not just about cleansing off the, the darkness within us, but there's something positive to what we are also as a giver. We have a life as a giver, as a lover. Not that, okay, you are an exploiter, now we'll stop that aspect of your life and you'll just be frozen there in prison forever. No, there's some reformation and you come out and act in a healthy way. And again, how to interact with the world in a way such as not to be a taker. With a clean heart, one can be associated with matter without being attached to matter. So, this is the first virtue. Now, anyway, I have given a long talk on that, but that's not our subject tonight. This has all been introduction. Bear with, bear with me. <laughs> Tonight is Baba Mahadavagani Nirvapanam. Baba Mahadavagani Nirvapanam. Maybe I should. Should, should I go on? We said a lot already, but I don't want to burden you with too much to think about in one setting. So after Chetodapanamajanam, cleansing the heart, he says something else. Similar, but it's a more developed idea. He says, Baba Maha Dabagani Nirvapanam. This is a metaphor that's 
often uh, employed in an effort to explain the nature of material existence. We talked about it a little earlier, the fire, if you will, of desire. So here he said, Baba Maha Dabagani, the world, material existence, Baba is Maha Dabagani, a great conflagration, the likes of which we could only compare to a forest fire. Like now in, in your state, in your hometown of Sedona, there, where your heart is, that is your home, your project, what you want to do, where you want to give and manifest something wonderful for your guru, Gaur, and Krishna. So you're thinking about that. Your heart is there. The phone is calling from there. You are there to answer, understandably. Now it's on fire. Big forest fire there in the high desert. So... We sing in, in, often in, in the morning a prayer of Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur. He says, Sangsara Dabanala. The Sangsara, which is a, means material existence, it, it is, he's comparing it in the same way. Dabanala. It is a great fire, like a forest fire. And Dabanalila Loka. The Loka, the people, are being consumed by this fire. And Lida, it's very. It's distressful. So, uh, the idea of a forest fire in ancient times, when these texts were written and this metaphor was drawn to explain material existence, is that, among other things, that in the, like say, in the Himalayan forest, where only rishis are living, mystics and so forth, there's no campers coming, putting their cigarette you know, but let it go and there's a fire or something like that. So the, the idea was that the forest, forest fire had no external cause, but it was just the nature of the thing that trees would rub together hmm, in the forest, especially like a bamboo where it grows very close together. Then that friction would cause a fire. The idea being that the fire of material existence comes... It's just the nature of material existence. It has no external cause. After all, this is an important theological point for all of us and anyone in any spiritual or religious tradition. What is the point? That if we accurately describe material existence, as this metaphor does, in terms of being a place of distress and suffering, what's the theological question that comes to mind? Why is there suffering if God is all good? Why is there evil if God is all good? So this is a, a question, of course, that every religious or uh, spiritual tradition has to grapple with, and they all try to answer it to one extent or another. And um, you know, it's an issue our tradition has to deal with that also. Not that, however, an explanation, a logical explanation is necessary. It may be necessary in terms of your conditioning, where you need things to make sense in order for you to proceed, because your logic ruled, or governed by your logic, you're proceeding with caution. You read the label, what's in it, before you eat it. People listen to someone like me speak, and they go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and they think about it, and some things they let in, and some things they don't, because they... They don't know if they agree with the logic necessarily. That can't keep me out, though. 
I can still go in. Because <laughs> I'm only... If you speak from the heart, you have to try to put it in logical arrangement, but that's only to communicate it in, in your language. But it's not limited, it's communication to language. In fact, language only limits the communication. So, we have an explanation. It may not satisfy everyone's intellect, and this, therefore the, the explanation should be prefaced with this point. If you insist that everything must fit between your ears, then you're not a fit candidate for spiritual life. There's some place for reasoning and logic, and it should make sense to a point, but it should, this should make sense to us also. The reason falls short. Love, after all it is said, knows no reason. And this is our ideal, as we said. I just did in Krishna. This is Rag Bhakti. It should be prefaced, the explanation. Not that it's not a good explanation, it is. The idea is that the forest fire of material existence, it starts on its own. We have a metaphysic, a world view, that really seeks to explain the ecstasy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. It was articulated by Sri Jiva Goswami. He calls it Achintya Beda Beda. In that metaphysic, it is said that reality is one and different simultaneously. That does not fit logically. Something cannot be imminent. How can something be imminent and transcendent at the same time? He didn't try to reason that much about it, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He basically said that, that that's what we read if we don't try to impose our intellect upon the world. And Jiva Goswami tried to explain it. Now, I'm not going to go into that whole explanation here tonight, but relative to the point that I'm making with regard to God's part in the evil and suffering of the world, how to exonerate him from that. The metaphysics says God is one and different. So we are one and different from God. We are a Shakti of Bhagwan of God. So that Shakti is, is like, like heat and light are one with fire but different from it. In as much as it's different to be in the heat than it is to be in the fire. But you can't really separate the two. If you have fire, you have heat, you have light. So heat and light are like the energy, the shakti of the fire. And if you know the shakti of an object or a person, then you really know the person. That's also, this is, of course, a beautiful theological point. If you know the shakti, then you know the person. He's dancing. The force of that shakti, Krishna. <clears throat> That's what making him dance. That is Krishna. Not without shakti. But when God has shakti, in the fullest expression of that shakti. That is what we mean by Krishna. That is achintya beda beda. And that shakti is one and different. Therefore, devotee is one and different. Because devotee is filled with that shakti. And that shakti, that is Krishna. And where is Krishna? Wherever that, that heart infused with sudasattva, sarup shakti, Bhagwan is manifesting accordingly. There's no meaning to Krishna without that, without those devotees. He does it doesn't exist independently of the devotee, in a sense. So, relation to the point here, there's two ways to look at it. We can look at it from the point of view of bed or abed, of difference or non-difference. If we look at it from the point of view of abed, means we are not different from God. We are not different. 
There's only God. There's no one else. Nothing else. No one else. Only God. God and God Shakti, but the Shaktis are not independent. They have no independent existence from God. So there's only God. So, if there's only God, then who's to blame? You understand? <laughs> so if we look from that side of the equation, there is no one to blame. There's only play. That's called Leela. This is called Srishti Leela, the world. The world is Bhava Mahadav Agni, as we're talking about. A great forest fire. It's a kind of a play. It's a kind of a drama. Srishti Leela, of a particular manifestation of the Absolute, the Paramatma, the Oversoul of the world. Srishti Leela means Leela of creation. And now we look from the other side of the equation. We're different from God. We can look from that side. Enough room to be devoted, to love God. Enough difference to love. Makes for a dynamic kind of unity. Then if we look from that side, we're different, then he's not to blame either. It's our fault. You understand? We are doing. We are exploiting nature. We are looking at nature through the filter of our senses in mind and taking the life out of that. We're seeing it in terms of what our senses in mind dictate would be good or bad, happy or sad. The world is revolting to that. Nature is not comfortable with that. That takes the life out of it. It has a purpose of its own. And it's not what we think of in our head. We're limiting it. We're taking the life out of it. So, this material existence, he says, it is Baba Mahadabhagani, like a great fire of desire. And Anadikaramopole, it has no beginning. That doesn't fit in your head very well, but it has no beginning. It has no beginning since time without any beginning that's been going on. That makes for a certain type of jeev. We call it Bada Jeev. Manifest from the Paramatma, who is Shristi Lila. So now some people will hear this and they think, unfair. Some souls are living an enlightened life and I'm living in material existence and suffering. It's unfair. Again, no one to blame. This is that complaint that well, God must be at fault. But no, no, don't think like that. Why? Because although it has no beginning, it can come to an end. And there's only one way that it can come to an end. And what is that way? As Vishwanath prays, Sangsara Dhavanalita Loka Tranaya Karuna Ghana Ghanatvam. He says, and this is our practical experience. What's happening right now in Sedona is everyone is praying. You understand? Every firefighter knows how to pray. At a certain point he sees, she sees, no human effort will suffice here. We have to back off only and pray for rain and no wind. It's beyond our power. We haven't figured out how to make rain, although the Bhagavad Gita talks about it there mystical way how to make rain so every firefighter has a prayer book whether they're you know officially a member of any religion or not they all have to pray at some point they just have to back off and hope for help from above so the town is praying that means that the forest fire of material existence it cannot be extinguished by any human endeavor no matter how sophisticated. And there are some very sophisticated human endeavors to bring about an end to material suffering. 
Now, yoga is a very sophisticated method. Mystic yoga and gyan. Gyan is a type of yoga. Gyan means the culture of knowledge. That's very sophisticated. There are less sophisticated ways to overcome the problem. This is in the realm of mysticism, but in the realm of karma, then there are attempts to overcome miseries of material existence, like you know, turning on the fan when it's hot out, or whatever it may be, amassing my own kingdom somewhere in a bigger bank balance. And these are ways to, to overcome it. Or even, or even I might think to act piously, that I might get good karma, I might go to heaven. But if we look carefully at Shastra, and Shastra means scripture, this is very important. It means, to put it in a dynamic sense or explanation, it's revelation. Scripture is a body of revelation. It means the absolute expressing itself in relation to us. If God wants us to know about God, we can know. Otherwise not. God's like UFO. You understand? Yes. There are people, they cite the UFOs right in the backyard. And when they go to get their friends in the next room and bring them, the UFO is gone. He showed himself that UFO to one person of his own choice. Then that person tries to tell everybody else and everybody else thinks he's crazy. What does he do then? He has to go find a society of UFO ciders <laughs> and join them. Right. And together they live in madness. Hmm? They try to pursue that glimpse they had of that UFO, an unidentified flying object. Hmm? Not identifiable by the material vernacular in any language. But we cannot give it up. We saw it. We were called. We had to pursue it. Something like that. And the rest of the world thinks they're mad. <laughs> so like that. He shows himself to whom he likes, as he likes, on his terms only. So that means that if the fire is to be put out, as it can be, it can come to an end. It comes karuna gana ganatvam. Mishwana says, a karuna. Karuna means compassion, mercy. And in his metaphor, he said, this mercy is like a rain cloud. If the rain cloud comes, the fire will be extinguished. So it means that while the material existence is a place of distress from time without beginning, that it, it is a stage on which God can perform, can express himself in terms of compassion. Can express compassion in relation to those who are already liberated or eternally liberated, who never have the material experience? Not really. He can express it in relation to us. And it is the most praised thing in the world, mercy over justice. When justice is overruled by mercy, and who has capacity to give mercy, this is a big topic. If you study it very carefully, you see, being a Badajiv, there's no better position to be in, better than the Nityasiddha whose devotion has never even been tested. <laughs> tested like Prahlad was tested by Nishinga Bhagwan personally. He be the object of the compassion of the Lord. Hmm? This is Mahabhana Nayabhutars. We come to this in so many ways, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and so forth. So it's not a bad deal. Like people might think, well, I got stuck in the material world. How come I got 
you know, singled out. You have to think of it like this. I was singled out to be the object of compassion of God, where he could show his full compassion to me. In this world, that will be extolled more than anything, this side. That is a relative, but it's relative to our experience, so it will be given an emphasis. So he said like this, this is the idea this, of this metaphor, Baba Mahadavagani. It is a great conflagration, this material existence. It has no beginning, but it, the good news is it can come to an end. And this is how it can come to an end. Not by any extraneous method, not by any independent exercise of one's intellect or one's senses, no matter how sophisticated the system may be. Yoga I talked about. You're telling me that yoga cannot extinguish the fire of material existence or gyan? The basis of material existence is ignorance. Gyan cannot end it. Gyan means knowledge. So what are we saying? We're saying this. No, not without any bhakti. It cannot. If you factor bhakti in, devotion, then it can. No endeavor will be successful without devotion. So you have to factor some bhakti in. So the wise person thinks, if you have to factor bhakti, devotion, into your yoga, then why not do bhakti yoga? <laughs> you understand? The yoga of bhakti, there's only bhakti, shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti, not bhakti for getting free from material existence. It's not about that. There's an example in the Gyan Mark, the path of knowledge, that the disciple comes before the guru and he sees on his head is a great fire that's burning him up like a fever. He comes to the guru to get relief from that. Now we're talking about that, but this is not bhakti. Because what did we say, generically speaking, bhakti was? Giving. Do you understand my point? He's not coming in bhakti, we don't come to the guru to put out material existence. He does put out material existence. But we don't come in pure bhakti, in the bhakti, with that in mind. We come to make ourselves available. See the strength of bhakti. What does bhakti say to us? People want their problems solved. What do we say? No, no, you don't understand. There are no problems. There's only service. There are no problems. That's just a perception. There's only service. Opportunity to serve, that's all. You understand? Bhakti is both the means and bhakti is the goal. Sadhya, sadhana. Abhed. No difference between the sadhana and the sadhya. Just the difference, only difference between the goal and the means is like the difference between an unripe and a ripe mango. That's all. So the point here is that what? You can approach God for the purpose of having the problem of material existence solved, as you perceive it to be a problem. We can talk about it as a problem, but from the broader perspective, the deeper we go, we see, oh, it's not, not a problem. It's only perception. But anyway, if we approach God for that through something as sophisticated as yoga or jnana, these are very sophisticated processes, you can get it. If you factor some bhakti in, you can get it. But then you're doing bhakti for something other than bhakti. So you'll get some kind of suspended animation, if you will. 
the struggle for material existence will be suspended, and so will your animation. You understand? Because life is about desire. So the problem with karma, or material, physical approaches to ending the, the problem of material existence, is it doesn't uproot the cause of the problem. It's superficial. The cause is desire. If we just fuel the desire by adding things materially onto our life to solve the problem, as we perceive it, we haven't got to the heart of the problem, which is the desire in the first place. And then through gyan, through knowledge, if we try to solve the problem by extinguishing desire, the problem will be solved, but another problem will be, will be created, will be suspended. Our animation will be suspended because life is desire. You understand what I'm saying? Some philosophers and mystics will teach that, hey, if you're happy, if you're fulfilled, then don't move. Hmm? You have to grow. Well, but the, their point would be, if you're fully grown, if you're mature, if you're full, then you have no desire, you have no need, so why get up, why go anywhere, why do anything? So therefore, their idea is that who's full is peaceful, shanti, shanti, not moving. And that movement is all about being incomplete. But there's a kind of movement now, to answer that, that comes out of being complete. Like if you're really full, then you might want to get up and dance to celebrate. That is Leela. Leela looks like karma, but it's not. It's play, and karma is work. You have to do, because you've taken, you have to pay. And Leela is arrived at by giving. It is the full giving. So there's no debt. It's only play. And this Leela is not, is animation. So we're suspending a certain type of animation. The movement within prison. We're suspending that. Or the kind of movement that gets you incarcerated. You see? One kind of movement that gets you incarcerated. There's another kind of movement that might get you out, like break, jailbreak. But that kind of movement is like this. Always looking over your shoulder. This is the jnani. You see? Suspended animation. He's moving, but he's not free. The fugitive. He's constantly on the move. He doesn't want to be. He wants to settle down and raise a family. <laughs> you see, so these approaches, Mahabharu has said, this is not sufficient. And to be successful in those, you have to practice some bhakti. So why not do Shuddha bhakti? Why not take the path of pure devotion only? So, Baba Mahadavagani Nirvapanam, he says. This kirtan, this chanting, which is the method to his madness, as I said, it comes goloker premodhana horinam sankirtan. It doesn't come from this world. It comes from outside. So the forest fire will be extinguished by something from outside of itself. And what does premodhan mean? This means mercy. Premodhan, the treasure, prem of love. He gives it in the form of this chanting. Goloker, that is the place where it is manifest. Just like in Brihat Bhagavatam, we learn what is the highest kind of devotion in the first part, and in the second part, what is the place like where that's expressed. This is what Chaitanya Dev is about. The love of the gopis and Goloka. That kind of place. How is that place described in so many ways? Chintamani, 
प्रकलसदुमसु कल्पवृक्षलक्षाबृतेशु सुरबीरपि फालयन्तम ऑलिस नाइस थिंग इट सेज ओ देयर ऑल द वॉकिंग इज डांसिंग ऑल द टॉकिंग इज सॉन्ग शिजीबुगोसामी रोड व्हाट मस्ट बी द डांसिंग देन व्हाट मस्ट बी द सिंगिंग देयर एंड द लैंड इज चिंतामणि like it's called a philosopher's stone that uh, you touch it to to iron it turns it into gold the trees they're culpable they give whatever you want the cows from the cow udder you can milk anything you want out of that sounds like a great place to go but what's the real beauty of the place the people there don't want anything that's incredible they don't want anything only one thing they want to serve krishna that's all to give They have no want. What do you get when you have no want? You see, everything is there. All the world is offering itself to you. But to speak of the worldly things, liberation is begging you. Take me, take me. No, I'm not interested. There are no problems. I don't need to be saved from anything. I don't need to be freed from any problem. I have changed my angle of vision now. My heart has been cleansed. Forest fires extinguished. Of course, we're not there yet. We're just extinguishing the forest fire here, but the point is, in such a way, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was taught, so that you won't be waylaid there simply with the extinguishing of the forest fire of material existence. In the context of pursuing this path, oh, there's a relief. We call it nishta. It's a great relief, and there's a vision. I can see now through what's on the other side. I can see. I'm not there, but I can see. The heat is out. The fire of material existence had been extinguished. Nasta praeshu abadreshu nityam bhagavati sevaya bhagavati utmashpaka bhakti bhavati nashtiki tadarajasthamo bhava kamalobhadayasthajecetaetaranabhitamstitam sape prasiditi This is beautiful, the poetry of Bhagavat describing all these things philosophically. Any question? But one thought came to my mind, I was... If we get free then from from Maya or from delusion, then is it the goal of the Vaishnava devotee just to get caught up in the lila with the Lord? Of course. And that frees us. That is freedom. That's total freedom. That's full giving. How many lifetimes can we get there? <laughs> that is a, that is a Maya. That kind of question is delusion. Maya means to count. To measure. That is material existence. Don't ever think like that. Maya means to measure, to count. If you're counting, you're not practicing. And if you're wondering what you will get, you are doing two things here. You're counting. That means you're not practicing bhakti. In the first place, you're not engaging bhakti if you're counting. And two, you want something, not bhakti. Bhakti is about giving. No wanting. If you attach any getting to your giving, you're not really giving. So that's why you're not getting. Hmm? <laughs> the student mind, mind asked me once. He said, "Gurmarsh, you know, I, you're always talking about giving and giving and giving, and but I'm not getting." I said, "Yeah, it's because you're not getting. <laughs> that's, that's the whole thing. That's the point. You want to get. So it's very subtle. It's bhakti, very difficult to understand." In two ways, you're in your approach to it, you have erred, important and significant ways. Don't count, and don't look for 
remuneration. You're taking. You want the cake. You want to go there. It's not about wanting. You'll never get there by wanting to go there. Do you want to see Krishna? No. Where has it said that? Serve Krishna? Yes. Yes. We're not looking to see Krishna. We're looking to serve Krishna. If that requires seeing him, fine. If not, <laughs> this is idea. <laughs> oh, no. We're not looking to see Krishna. We're looking to serve Krishna. That's where you find Krishna. And how long will it take me to see? That's the second problem. Counting. That is Maya. So, what else? Another question? Yes, you have a mind. Um, do you think that the actual yoga process helps people to understand that they're not just the body, but they're also not the mind either? Yeah, that's what yoga's for. Yoga does that. So that actually helps us to beat our mind with a shoe. Yoga helps you to beat your mind with a shoe. What yoga doesn't do is help you to love Krishna. But it helps us become less confused on the way to loving Krishna. It can give you knowledge, it can give you, help you to control your senses, and so forth. Right. But it cannot give you love of Krishna. And love of Krishna, and the direct cultivation of that, can control your mind and control your senses, mm. also. But really, in today's world, in the Western world in particular, then, People are a little attracted to yoga, mostly for health and so forth. And and so if you teach people that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you get the full meal of bhakti, that is that is what's this is required. Through, you know, through my time as, as a devotee, I've seen so many um, other devotees they just don't understand, they just don't get it. They, they, That's true. They, they, you know, just chanting the holy name and, and, and you know, mm. everything will be fine, everything will be great, and then, and then they do something really... Well, everything will be fine if they chant without offense, but they don't, so, so there, there are problems. So as long as you're chanting with offense, means you're still materially conditioned, then you will tend to seek other remedies that will be useful to a point. It's a big topic. <laughs>